Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. My name's Ray. I'm your host. This is the sixth episode that we've done having a guest on the podcast. This episode's with Alex Seidel. He's the founding chef, current chef, and kind of chef owner of a few different restaurants in the Denver area. The first one that he opened up was Fruition. I think he's still kind of chef in there right now just because of the pandemic and everything. It's also Mercantile Dining and Provision. That they recently just hired Alex Estrani to take over as executive chef uh, for Matt Vauder, who left after, I think Matt was there probably seven, ten years. He'd been there a long time. He moved to Breckenridge to open his own restaurant that just opened a couple months ago and shook charcoal chicken, which is there's three locations that they have and continuously expanding everything. And also he has a, a farm, a bread making business, Fud Mill, which is the bread and pastry. Fruition Farms Creameries, the cheese. And he goes into, into that. And then he actually mentions, which I didn't know, that he's getting ready to sell the farm that he has. It's going to relocate the creamery closer to downtown or to the downtown area where the restaurants be closer for all the staff and everything. He goes into it on the podcast. Oh, and then he's also doing pottery too as well. So I kind of cover it with him, but he's basically in a roundabout way, whether on purpose and intentionally or not, infiltrated every aspect of kind of the whole farm to table process, you know, the farm and doing the cheese and the meats and raising animals and vegetables and produce and Running a restaurant, you know, he's attacking plateware now, uh, you know, whether it's restaurants, you know, whether it's fine dining or casual, fast casual concept, giving back to the community uh, is a big part of, of what he's got going on too as well. They did stuff for first responders during COVID. Um, they're constantly giving back with the the Shook, you know, profits going back into the community. You know, he is pretty influential in the Denver scene. I mean, he makes a comment that, you know, he doesn't want to run for any sort of political office or anything like that, but Senator Seidel does have like a nice ring to him. So I don't think he ever will though, but, um, you know, if he does, I wouldn't be surprised either. So it's a cool interview. He's a very kind of thoughtful guy. You can tell there's intention behind everything that he does with the restaurant. Any sort of move, whether it's hiring somebody or opening a new restaurant, there's just reasoning behind it. And it's completely flushed out. And it's pretty cool to be able to chat with him about, you know, his career and the restaurants in Denver and him bouncing around and what's next and and all that stuff, too. So uh, without further ado, here is an interview with Alex Seidel of Fruition and Mercantile and all that good stuff. Well, well thanks for doing this. Really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast and everything. You know, I think probably the best paella not that paella is something that you have often, but probably the best that I ever had was at one of your restaurants. So nice. uh, definitely wanted to, you know, chat with you and and learn kind of more about how you got in into the industry and everything. I mean, you're one of the prominent names, I would say, in the Denver restaurant scene out there. So how did you get started, you know, in the industry? Like, how did you wind up, you know, knowing that you wanted to become, become a chef? Well, um, when I first got in the industry, I didn't know. I uh, was 14 years old and uh, raised by a single mom. And uh, as soon as I could get that work permit, I had to get a job. And uh, I started at a place called Swingers. Was it named after the movie? No, I have no idea what it was after. Um, but it was like a steak and rib joint in Racine, Wisconsin. And I uh, started washing dishes. And, uh, you know, I had this guy who was, uh, he was mentally handicapped. And... Is my teacher. 
he's the guy who trained me in the dish pit. And I always looked up to him. He was the, he was the guy that won't allow one little water spot on the stainless steel. And, uh, I think that's probably where I got a lot of my angel tendencies from right out the gate, uh, was being trained by him, you know, and there was just an energy in the kitchen, listening to a laser one Oh three drinking free sodas. I, I was like, felt on top of the world. Um, and then, you know, it's, I kind of continued on and just, uh, really want to learn more as I was doing it. And, uh, I cooked my way through college and I worked for a couple chefs that really turned me on to food. And uh, the rest is kind of history. I've just been pushing to learn more and more every day. You got your start, like you mentioned, as a dishwasher. You're from Wisconsin. I can detect still some of the Wisconsin accent. Has that faded over time? It's faded. And maybe when I have a couple drinks, it comes out a little bit more. But uh, for the most part, it's faded, I think. Some people can still hear it. I only can hear it because I got a friend who's from Wisconsin. So every once in a while, it's it's not a, the Wisconsin accent's not as strong as like the Minnesota one. But I'm from you know the East Coast, so every once in a while, like I'll have the Boston part of the Boston accent will will drop out. You know, definitely after you have a couple drinks, it's more susceptible. Sure, <laughs> you became like a sous chef like really early on, right? I think it was what you were allowed in like twenty, I think, or so. Yeah. I worked my way on up um, at a little place called Luis's Trattoria. It was in Milwaukee. Um, when I started there, I literally bullshitted my way out of the line. Um, never held a line position like that. And I, I became the lead line cook. And I remember starting off, I didn't even know which plates, which dishes went in which plate. And like, oh my God, I was, I was lost, but I made it happen. And I cooked good food. Um, and that was the most important thing, I guess. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just, you know, continued on the path. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just been, uh, traveling, learning, trying to figure it out. Um, learn as much as I could. I, I was never an executive chef till I owned my own restaurant. So with that guy who uh, gave me the opportunity to be a sous chef, his name was, uh, Adam Medina. And, uh, he's a Mexican guy from uh, California who came to Milwaukee to help open this restaurant. And, uh, he pushed me pretty hard. Um, we hung outside out of work, played soccer and things like that. He was a little bit older than I was quite a bit, maybe 10, 15 years. Um, and I ran into him in California about four years ago doing an event and he came and cooked at the event with me. And, uh, he's like, Hey, I have a son. I want you to teach him how to cook. So, uh, Adam Medina Jr. ended up coming out to Mercantile and uh, really kicked ass with us for for a few years before moving back to California. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, yeah, I, n- I never heard that story. That's that's awesome. That it's kind of still connected after all these years. Totally. You went to Western Culinary Institute in Portland, right? Correct. What what made you choose Portland, Oregon for? culinary school instead of something like you know the cia where most people kind of go or even at the time i think probably what le cordon bleu was still around probably too so that might have been an option yeah i um le cordon bleu actually bought western culinary institute after i left okay but really it was a uh i took a trip with a girl i was dating she was uh in the service industry and we took a we took a trip out to tahoe and we took a trip out to portland oregon and i was researching different schools and one i didn't have a lot of money um you know same kind of thing was following me around lived on loans in college um making cooks wage you know um 
And so when I was ready to go to culinary school, I, I left college. I was playing soccer in uh, college. And I left after my third year, decided that cooking was what I wanted to do. And uh, Western Culinary Institute was a one-year program. And I felt like I already had some skills, but I needed to kind of round myself out, figure new things out, maybe uh, be introduced to things that I didn't even realize that were out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Western Culinary was 13 grand a year. And it was one year. And uh, I remember other culinary schools being 25, 30 grand a year. And there was no way I was going to take out more and more loans after going to college uh, to start a cooking career. So, uh, so yeah, Portland, I fell in love with the city. Um, you know, as far as restaurants go, there were a lot of restaurants there in the 90s uh, and through the 2000s. And uh, probably some of the best seafood and produce I've ever used in my career. Um, wine country was there. The ocean was there, you know, just an opportunity to get out of the Midwest really. Uh, so that's where I landed. Is there a big difference that you know of between like the culinary stuff that you went through versus something? I know like the CIA, they kind of have you pick a lane. Like if you want to do French or Italian or I think Asian now, did you have to kind of decide on that when you were going through or was it more about just sharpening kind of your skill set? Yeah, no, I think it was more about just taking the kid out of Wisconsin, really, um, and trying to open myself up to a potential career um, that I, I knew I wanted to focus on at that point. Um, I After going through college for three years, um, I really knew it was about what you put into school, not what the school puts into you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like I could pretty much go anywhere, learn the things, feel like get a bit of a foundation that I wasn't really taught in learning in restaurants. Um, some of the foundations and basics, I, I like I said, I bullshitted my way onto that lead line cook position, and I never, I never worked a prep position. I never worked a garmage station. You know, it was like I kind of fucked myself because I skipped those things. And so that's probably why it took so long in becoming a chef because I really want to learn everything be and be able to teach it before uh, before I put myself in that role. Yeah. Do you think culinary school now is like a worthwhile investment for anybody like coming up through your restaurants? Would you would you recommend that they go, or do you think like depending on the restaurant that they're working at, on hands experience is better? I think um, it depends on the individual. Okay. Um, I don't think you can make a blanket statement whether culinary schools are good for people or not. I certainly um, felt like I overpaid for my education that I received in culinary school. Um, I watched those schools make more and more money off of kids and put them into pretty large debt. So I wasn't a fan of culinary schools for a while there. Yeah, But everybody has a road. Uh, I certainly talked people out of going to culinary school to work with me. Mm -hmm. But my kitchen's not necessarily like every other kitchen. You know, I mean... I do believe we can uh, give people the tools and knowledge they need uh, in fruition, even more so than mercantile. Okay. So every restaurant's different, you know? Yeah, for sure. So then you go through culinary school, you graduate, and just kind of going through the timeline here. And then you kind of, you go California, right? I, th I think you wind up kind of in the Pebble Beach area. Uh, you were there for like a year, uh, Hubert Keller's restaurant there. And then you bounce over to Sous Chef, I think. At one point, um, I think uh, Antoine uh, Michel um, there too. So, you know, you basically, I think for probably like two years or so, you kind of 
learned on the job and then eventually became a, a CDC. Yeah, I mean, uh, my move to California was kind of based on the same things that my move to Portland was, financials. I looked at San Francisco and back in the late 90s, um, 98, 97, maybe 96, it was 1800 bucks for a one-bedroom, you know. Uh, I just couldn't see myself living in the city and affording it. Uh, so I bounced around a little bit and I landed up in, uh, Monterey and Carmel, did my internship from school at Pebble beach and, uh, continue to work through some of their outlets. It was a good experience. It was, it was large exposure to many different things. Um, so that was good. And then, uh, it was time to move on and just get after my career again. And I settled on a little French restaurant in Carmel called Anton and Michel, the chef there, was trained at Maxim's in Paris way back in the day. Uh, he's a Chinese chef. Worked there for a bit and just felt like I wasn't getting enough. And uh, I went out looking for my first real job. Was that like your first experience with like heavily influenced like French cuisine? Uh, kind of? Or had it always just been something that you kind of encountered? Yeah, I mean, um, it was my first real intense French restaurant. Um but I wasn't really necessarily a fan of the food. It was a little old school um, and classic in many ways. And so uh, I found a job with uh, at Carmel Valley Ranch, which was a hotel, golf resort. Um, I don't know. I think there's a, uh, oh, what's the chef? Has a restaurant, Limon there. I can't remember his name. He's famous back in the day. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that was the first job I actually had to do a tasting for and um, ran one of the restaurants on the property. And uh, that was my first real opportunity to uh, take the reins of a kitchen and build menus for it and train a team and figure out how to do that. Yeah, so you're, you're running the whole deal. Did you wind up, I think you wind up going to, to Vail Valley, right? After that? Yeah, they actually wanted me to uh, check out a property in Telluride. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted me to go be a chef there. And uh, they flew me out. And I stayed over, met a buddy from culinary school in Denver. We drove up to Vail and went to Sweet Basil for dinner. I was like, oh, I like this place. I'm going to drop my resume. And because uh, I you know, I had all my stuff as I'm going out for this job interview. The next day, I flew to Telluride, talked to them, figured out that's not where I wanted to be. Um, and Sweet Basil called me that same day and said, hey, um, would love to talk to you about a position. Just uh, was it just the restaurant that that you just didn't vibe with, or was it like the area? I think it was a small town. Um, moving to Telluride, one one road in, one road out. A big part of it was uh, they talked about the labor issues there. The fact that hiring was such a struggle. As a manager, you're going to be working 90 hours a week. And I was like, that doesn't sound like anything creative for me. That just sounds like being a workhorse. And I liked the food uh, that Bruce Yim was doing at Sweet Basil. And uh, when he called me and yeah, I was like, yeah, I'll uh, come check it out. I've heard that that Sweet Basil is a pretty challenging challenging place to work just because it's so busy. You're doing so many different covers. Is that an accurate representation? Very. Yeah, it's a challenging place to be. I mean, uh, I, I worked there for three years, three, three seasons. Um, it is by far the busiest... Not the busiest restaurant I've ever been in or worked in, but um, as far as the quality of the food and the standards that we set, um, you know, you're cooking a piece of foie gras or a piece of turbo fish with 
um, next to 40 rack of lamb and 50 pork chops and 75 tenderloins, you know? So it's like, uh, some very dainty skills in there. And, uh, yeah, I remember throwing away nine full nine pans of Brunois. I mean, we had one dish that had Brunois cucumber, Brunois jalapeno and Brunois shallot. And you had to prep a nine pan of all three of those every day. And if it wasn't right, start over. So you're, you're there for like, uh, like you said, three years. Then you wind up in Denver at uh, Mizuna, right? Correct. Now that's more of like fine dining, but you're the executive chef. So was it still kind of similar to what you were doing at Sweet Basil or was it just a completely different kind of style or environment? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it taught me a lot more about food because uh, we were able to slow down. You know, the most we ever did was 100 covers. Um, so you were really able to uh, be creative. We worked on tasting menus and amuses every night. You know, and then I was there from the experiment with food. And uh, food cost wasn't an issue there. Inventory wasn't even taken. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a great opportunity to, to helm that kitchen. It gave me the confidence to, to think that I could do it on my own. Did you have just like kind of free creative reign to do whatever you wanted to there as well. Yep. Yeah. Coming from <clears throat> Sweet Basil and working with Bruce, I, I learned uh, learned a bit about Asian food uh, working with him and uh, brought a little bit of that down into the French fusion, I guess, if you will, confusion. Um, dabbled a little bit, tried not to make it too confusing, but yeah, just um, had free reign there. And, you know, I, I pretty much ran the restaurant. Uh, it was small. And, uh, you know, I did all the hiring and menus. And, uh, like I said, it just, uh, it gave me a platform to, to share myself as a chef and also continue to learn on how to, I was obviously running someone else's restaurant. Um, but I treated it as my own and I was getting to a point where I was bored and, uh, it was four and a half years and, uh, an opportunity. I never thought I'd own a restaurant, never even dreamt of it. Um, but an opportunity came up and presented itself. And it was very similar in the fact that it was a small restaurant and felt I could manage a very similar size business. And um, yeah, that's basically where fruition came from. So it was the opportunity just kind of presented itself. You weren't, or did you think at that point you were starting to look for some, something else that would challenge? And then that just kind of came up. Like you said, you were kind of bored at that point. Yeah, I mean, same thing. I I, um, I, I didn't have any money, you know. I, I work. I started working at Mizuna for six hundred and fifty dollars a week mm-hmm. as a chef. But I was in a creative space, and it was more about building my career than <clears throat> making the coin. And uh, there was another chef here in town named Sean Kelly who had this little restaurant, and um, I met him. Um, I was always like, "When's the investor going to walk through the door? You know, when's that person going to take a chance on me?" Or um, that never happened. And a friend of mine who I played soccer with growing up, he's now the most, uh, I guess, most um, successful American soccer coach in history. He's coaching in Austria. And uh, so we're pretty tight. But he uh, used to play in the MLS and he came through and he was like, when are you going to open your own restaurant? As he was eating at Mizuna. And I was like, well, I don't have any money. And he's like, well, let's talk. And then this opportunity came up. And I don't think Sean was doing very well in this space. Um, the most they'd ever done is like 600 grand out of this space. And he was basically selling it for nothing. Um, so I got 100 grand from my buddy Jesse, and I got 50 grand from my uncle and my father in law uh, combined and started with 150 grand. And uh, there were bars on the windows and 
the bathrooms were just out in the middle of the dining room with nothing in front of them. Um, plaster falling down off the walls. Uh, the hood fell out of the ceiling. Um, so obviously it's a shithole, but, uh, or it was a shithole, but I always said it wasn't about the four walls. It was about the people inside. And uh, yesterday we turned 14. So, you know, you're basically put together this kind of shoestring budget to get this restaurant. I mean, how much of kind of all the interior work, whatever renovations and stuff, was that just you and like buddies that you could call upon? Like, hey, can you come help me? Like, we got to fix this. Or like, how did you go about to just kind of like turning it into what it is now, like that everybody knows it to be? Yeah, I mean, uh, my Uncle Frank and my Auntie Di came out from Wisconsin, um, helped me do some some slight building. <clears throat> and uh, like I said, we hired a small team. And uh, it was really just about building a team and being proud of what we we're serving and trying to simplify, not not creating anything too crazy. I mean, uh, I did a lot of food at Mizuna that some of the best dishes I thought I made as a chef were the dishes that didn't sell. Um, you know, I was doing abalone back in 2002 in Denver and I'd sell like one or two. And, uh, so fruition, I wanted to open up. I, I kept thinking to myself, like, it's not really the ingredients that people love. They just love good food. They love food that's executed well, that's seasoned properly, uses good ingredients and it tastes good. You know, I mean, people like spaghetti and red sauce, tomato and basil is a caprese salad. Um, chicken noodle soup warms your heart. Um, so instead of like continually thinking outside the box as I was doing growing as a chef, I, I just wanted to embrace simplicity. Um, and we opened up with chicken noodle soup on the menu. Um, you know, a pasta carbonara that has been reinvented a couple times, uh, oysters Rockefeller. Um, so it's always been, you know, if I did a veal parmesan, I would use veal breasts. Um, you know, and just kind of slightly do some plays on food that people understood and they knew. And, uh, we called it sophisticated comfort food and I don't know, I guess people enjoyed it. Yeah. Cause I'd be mean, like pretty much after two years of opening, like you just start, you know, getting all these different accolades through like the press. I mean, I think like chef of the year, you're named by 5280 magazine, a, a James Beard nomination, all that stuff. So when all that stuff kind of started happening, how did that how did that affect the restaurant? Like how did that affect because I mean obviously you're gonna be busier now that the word's out that hey, here's this great restaurant in Denver. But how else did that kind of change things for you? For me, it was uh it was very unsettling when I was opening the restaurant, just not knowing how the food would be perceived. Um, you know, I would think about critics and all these things and uh but I think once I got into the kitchen and started building a team, I mean, I, I started with a bunch of green guys, uh, some kids that were barely out of culinary school, and I wanted to teach them. And I think that just took up so much of my energy that I didn't really focus beyond the kitchen. I didn't look at a bank statement or a P&L for the first eight months. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just, I just really cooked my ass off. And uh, we actually got our first review in the Denver Post, and it was after one month of being open. And that's really what kind of set it off because I don't know if it was the first paragraph or what, but it was in the beginning of the review that the guy, Tucker Shaw, he's like, I would never write a review on a restaurant one month in, but I begged my editor because this place is too great not to get it out there right away. Something along those lines. And like from there on out, it just kind of snowballed. And again, we were just trying to prepare simple, good food. And I think as some of those things come, um, you feel more pressure to perform 
then you're thinking about evolution and like how do I keep things fresh and creative and people are looking at this as a uh, a kitchen that is um, generating a, a new vibe I guess and so how do we keep that fresh and uh, that's really what it was was head down and I mean those first two years um, were very challenging mentally physically uh, my son was born a month before the restaurant was open uh, my wife hated me um, I worked 90 hours a week and uh, that's really where the farm came into play because it was kind of a, a, a break. Um, I was missing the agricultural piece from Oregon and California. Um, I was getting burnt out, creating new dishes every month. Uh, um, and I did that at Mizuna for the four and a half years I was there. So it was like six and a half years of constantly creating new, 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 new. Yeah. Never repeating a dish. And uh I just needed something else. And that's really where the farm came into play. I just needed to continue my knowledge along a different avenue. I felt like two years in, I had, I had uh, put together a really good team, passionate team of people. Um, we had created a foundation for our style of food in our restaurant. And I didn't want to burn out. And I kind of felt at that time, I was like, man, there's only so many ways I can cook a piece of meat or fish. I need to learn something new. And May of 2009, I purchased a farm. Well, how did you come across like the farm? Did, were you actively like searching for a farm? Like you decided this is what I, this is my next step is to do a farm or was it just driving around one day and you saw a sign and it was like, well, that's interesting. No, it was, uh, so I told you I was missing that connection, right? Mm -hmm. From uh, farmer's markets and I mean, not a lot of farms here in Colorado. It's high mountain desert, um, dry. And, uh, but I was working with a guy who started in his in-laws basement growing greens and microgreens. And, uh, we became pretty good friends and he was growing his business. And we just started talking about a farm and how cool it would be to do our own thing. And, uh, he couldn't necessarily afford the farm and I necessarily couldn't afford to work at the farm full time. So it was like a great partnership. And I purchased the piece of farmland. He, he worked it for four and a half years. So uh, I've had uh, Ilsa, who's been working it the last seven years there still. So um, when he left, we kind of focused more on vegetables and got rid of all the microgreen stuff. And um, yeah, so that's what we've been doing. And I took Jim, who was one of my young cooks. Um, when I bought the farm, he really excelled at it. And I bought it in May and in November of 09, I asked him if he wanted to go to Hudson Valley. There was a dairy symposium that an old friend of mine, his mom hooked me up with, uh, this lady, Nancy Clark from old Chatham sheep, sheep dairy out in New York and uh, invited me to this date sheep dairy symposium. And I took Jim and on the plane ride back, I asked him if he wanted to leave the kitchen and, uh, be a part of the farm team and make cheese and raise animals. Um, so he's been doing that for the last 12 years. Um, we brought sheep down September 2010 and started Colorado's first artisanal sheep dairy and creamery. Where did you bring the sheep from? We brought them. Uh, so we met a, a farmer, a family from Nebraska, and uh, it's the Halligans. And Bill Halligan was actually voted in as the president of the Dairy Sheep Association uh, the year we went to that symposium. So he certainly had a lot of clout in the industry and a lot of experience and history in the industry. And uh, they invited us up work at their farm. So we'd break out of here after service on Friday or Saturday night, go up there and spend two days learning how to milk and lamb and feed and the veterinary side. And 
Um, so when it came time to getting our milking sheep, uh, they provided us with our first 40 ewes and one ram. What was, what was harder opening your first restaurant or opening the farm? I would say probably the farm. Um, that's what I figured, you know, I didn't have a business plan. Um, and I kind of just won it and take, I took the same approach as a chef in mise en place. Um, and I just tried to think about every component that I would need for the farm. And, uh, we certainly toured some, some dairies and some creameries and took a cross country trip and, uh, bought a bunch of equipment in a U-Haul, um, and just came back and, I had a friend, Val Landrum, who was a cheesemaker at Haystack. Uh, he came and helped us the first six months um, in making some cheese. And then we've developed three cheeses since he left. Um, and Jim has made some award-winning cheese. So um, it's probably the thing that's closest to my heart as far as the farm goes. Because um, I'm actually just about ready to put the farm up for sale. Oh, really? Yep. Is that related to to COVID at all, or is it just time to... No, I think it's just time for the next chapter. Um, I've been looking at moving the creamery into Denver for the last three or four years. Okay. Just for efficiency's sake, you know. Um, it's an hour outside of town. It, you know, it gets delivered to Denver. Then we got to ship it down there, the milk. And then we got to ship the cheese back up here. And, you know, it's just a process. And it's hard to manage from far away now with five restaurants. Uh, so I don't yeah. get there as much. Um, so just looking at taking what we've learned and putting that into the next chapter. It's been 12 years, over a quarter of my life. And uh, it's just time. I've learned a lot. I've networked with a lot of people. I've gained some great mentors. And I think I could be more efficient in uh, the agricultural space without the farm being down there. Okay. So you're just basically, so you're hanging on to the cheese element of the farm, but the rest of it's going to disappear yeah so the growing piece and the management of the land and um so but you know i've been working on other things like i said i've had some meetings with the secretary of ag here kate greenberg i've put together a small panel of uh people who are mentors and people i look up to um to see if we can create a colorado food and farm bill uh so i guess it's just uh taking what I've learned and uh, filtering it and putting it to the right places, you know, and trying to alleviate some of the uh, lack of efficiency in my life um, when it comes to managing these things. Plus, there's also probably other farms in the area too, right? So you're still able to source all your ingredients, you know, most of them probably local since you kind of established that you can open a farm, you know, in the Denver area. Yeah, I mean, a lot of farms have popped up over the years, which I'm really excited to see. I mean, there's a lot more opportunities for for local produce, uh, local meats. And, uh, you know, we actually, Denver now has its, you know, we helped start um, the Union Station Farmers Market in front of Mercantile, which is the only grower-only farmers market in Colorado, um, besides Boulder, uh, because it's managed by Boulder. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just shows the growth, um, of our culinary scene. It was even in, when I first got here, it was kind of like mean potato town with tumbleweed still floating through. And, you know, we've, we've attracted a lot of agriculture. We've attracted a lot of smart people. Um, some great chefs and restaurateurs have come into Denver and just made a, a way more vibrant community. Yeah. So then after the farm, that's kind of when you open Mercantile. 
And it's like, uh, for those that don't know, it's, you know, like a restaurant, a market, a chef's counter. It's just like everything you kind of think of all in one. Right. Um, was that decision primarily due to needing more growth opportunities for everybody that you had? Or was it just, did you feel like that it was time to open another restaurant? A little bit of both. You know, I, um, I had this idea that I opened up my first restaurant in a small little building. And um, if I could do it over again, what would I do? Um, I had learned a lot. My head was exploding with ideas. Um, you know, I was learning Venoiserie and wanted to make the best croissant in town. I was doing canning and pickling. I was doing charcuterie and preservation of meat. Um, you know, and uh, the farm came around before farm to table restaurants became a cliche thing. Um, and when that became cliche, I was really annoyed by it by farm to table, farm to table, farm to table. Cause ever since I started cooking back when I was in 14, you know, um, we got our food from farms and people would always come in and I didn't want to be known as that restaurant. that was like, Oh, and we get this from the farm and we do this at our farm. And Oh my God, this is coming from our farm. And, uh, so I would teach my team to not talk about the farm. Um, but they had to be knowledgeable about it if they were asked about it. Okay. And my one of my biggest mottos ever has been undersell over deliver. I wasn't trying to sell the idea of the farm. I was trying to deliver an experience that people didn't have. I was trying to learn more. I was trying to figure out the growth of food here in Colorado. And I didn't want to preach it. I wanted people to experience it. And Mercantile, as I said, was, you know, I had Matt Vauder who was with me for a long time. He started in Garmage. Um, he was growing, um, and the more and more I thought about all these projects, it was like, well, shit, we can do this together. You know, this is going to be an explosion of my mind into a restaurant. There was, I traveled around the country. There weren't three meal period of day operations that were restaurant market. Just, they just didn't exist. Um, the food hall didn't exist, uh, when I opened, you know, uh, now every town's got four or five, 10 of those. Um, yeah. But the idea of the market was to, people used to come into fruition, oh, I wish I could take these veal cheeks home, or I wish I could make these, or oh my God, so here I am, now I have this farm and I have these products that we're creating. How are we going to provide them to our guests without selling them? Yeah. And that's kind of where the market theme came in place. And it was an idea where we could share all of our producers with our guests. Somebody wanted to come in and get a pound of mussels, they could get the best mussels that are one day out of the water in Colorado. Um, you know. You can't get that at Whole Foods or anywhere else. Um, so that was the idea. And, you know, I'm still thinking about what it looks like in the future. Um, now we've got Food Mill, which basically is all my pastries and croissants. Um, we had to move that out of Mercantile immediately because it took off bigger than I thought. You know, we weren't just making a couple dozen croissants anymore every day. Um, and then Whole Foods wanted them. So... Uh, we deliver to eight Whole Foods now. So I have this building where we operate food mill. And now the idea is how do I bring all these brands under one roof? And how do I share them in even a more uh, front-facing way? Because we don't we don't have a we don't have a coffee shop or anything. Mercantile is the retailer that sells our pastries and all those types of things. But we've been thinking about how we can, you know, all my businesses are integrated uh, from the ground up. And so they all work together and support each other from the farm to the restaurants to the to food mill. And uh, how do I bring those all on, under one roof and continue to uh, improve those brands and um, make something out of them? How did, how did you get into doing the pastry 
superfood mill? Like, was that just a natural progression of, hey, I've never really done this. So I want to challenge myself and learn about how to do pastry? Or did you just see an opportunity like there's no real wholesaler doing this kind of stuff here in Denver? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, for many reasons. I mean, in culinary school at Western Culinary Institute, I used to walk down the bake shop and get a ham and cheese croissant every morning because I couldn't afford any food anywhere. But I would grip on ham and cheese croissants. And uh, so um, I was thinking part of mercantile was going to be bread because I also really enjoy bread. Um, and then I, I couldn't see how to build a bread operation out of mercantile. And so it focused to Venoiserie. Um, and I went and I, I went out and I worked with a friend out in San Francisco, William Werner. Uh, he owned Craftsman and Wolves. And he was really big into uh, natural fermentation with Venoiserie, um, which I, you know, most French pastry chefs would shoot you for using a starter. Um, but we had, a, we've had a starter since the beginning of fruition and we thought it was a way to bring a pastry that Denver had never seen before, uh, as far as the quality and the technique. And, uh, and also nobody can duplicate the flavor of our, our starter or our, our pastry. And like I said, I just planned on it being a small program inside a mercantile. And then four months into business, I was like, man, we're never going to be able to, I mean, it was a three day process for the Crisanto alone, you know, and it's like, fuck. Um, so I started looking for buildings right away and, uh, got when that whole foods wanted the pastries and, uh, just been working on them since. And then Liz, uh, who's been with me, she started as a pastry cook at mercantile. She was there when the program was at Mercantile. She's now my pastry chef at Food Mill, and she continues to create new products and uh, work on new programs, um, rolled out a focaccia program for Whole Foods. So just continuing to tinker and see what the, see what the future holds. I mean, it's been a little bit of like playing defense this year and just getting through the year um, with many things. But um, I think we're poised to come out of this COVID situation stronger um, because We've built strong teams over the last 14 years. Have you explored, like, you know, I think probably a big thing that will come out of all this is CPG. So, and a lot of, some restaurants are doing it now, but making different items available to people everywhere. Is that something that you've thought about at all? I, I know it can be daunting because of shipping costs. And how do you keep this croissant, for example? How do we get it from here, point A to point B, but it still tastes like it's in point A? You know, right? Yeah. So I mean, a uh, lot of evolution there. I mean, uh, we also started a preservation program, canning and pickling program at Mercantile. Through COVID, I moved that over to the commissary. Um, Whole Foods now has that um, product as well as as does Marzix um, and a bunch of other little food places. So the whole reason I've been in this business is because I love making people happy. Through bottom line, I mean, you walk through my restaurants. There's no Zagat scores or food and wine or you know, beer, anything by the bathrooms, you know, or it's the undersell over deliver, you know, I just love making people happy with food. If we can create products that people can take home and enjoy in their home, I'm all for that. And, uh, you know, I guess I've been shipping cheese all over the country for 12 years. Um, and that's what I mean about building these brands into stronger regional brands, um, and seeing what it looks like in the future. I mean, when you talk about a croissant, um, we're just talking about developing frozen, ready-to-bake croissants. I mean, Pillsbury does something like that, but that's not a layered croissant. So it's like there's a huge open market for frozen 
amazing croissants that uh, you can pop in the oven that are pre-proofed and every and ready to go. Because uh, there's not many people doing those things. So um, listen, if there's an opportunity, I do believe that the experience for diners will have to go outside of the four walls of a restaurant at some point. Um, you look at all the delivery, DoorDash, all these things that are taking away from the restaurant experience. Um, so how do you create it yourself then? How do you create it for yourself? Um, and so that's really what we've been focused on. So you touched on it a little bit with, with the Beard Awards. You eventually win the, the Best Chef, I think it's Southwest category. But at that point, you had been nominated, I think, I don't know, eight, 10 years in a row. Were you just kind of numb to it at that point? Or were you, did you feel relief? Like finally, like, okay, this is over with now. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I never really set out to win any awards. Um, so to be acknowledged for 10 years, I guess, is some staying power. Um, and the fact that it came up every year and you were on a list and people were like, oh my God, you're the greatest. And then you win and then everybody forgets about it. So I don't know what's better, winning or being on the list every year for 10 years. Um, I don't know. That's a little bit of a joke. But, you know, no, it's it interesting to think about, like, because it is, you know, it is a marketing vehicle to an extent. So if your name is constantly on there, is that more valuable for a restaurant than actually winning the award? That's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Again, it wasn't like, oh, I lost again this year. or Oh, I didn't make it. You know, I um, I believe there's a lot of talented chefs out there. Um, and, you know, I the Southwest used to have to compete with Texas, um, which has a lot of great food. Um, it's different now, but um, I it helped me also be aware of the talent that was in our region, you know, and the people that were doing good food and which also helps inspire you to want to get better. So then after that, you open Shook. Yep. The first, the first Shook. What, why chicken, why fast casual chicken? I mean, that, that seems to be kind of the new thing now, but again, you're one of the pioneers of it. I mean, you and I mean, Dave Chang has Fuku and, and Sean Brock just started doing some stuff too. But I mean, you're at the forefront of how to doing fast, casual chicken sandwiches. So like, like how did that all come about? Well, um, I've got a partner that I do a lot of work in the community with and uh, we've aligned quite nicely over the years. And he kept asking me to do this chicken shop or, hey, man, you should do this chicken shop. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want another restaurant. I don't need another restaurant. Um, but I sat on a panel for Centura Health about five, six years ago talking about food access and food is medicine. And uh, in that was doctors from all over the country. And one of them stood up and said, hey, you know, fruition and mercantile aren't that accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that kind of hit home for me because I grew up food insecure and I could have never afforded a fruition or a mercantile when I was growing up. And a lot of, as I mentioned, as the farm has helped me understand agriculture, um, the needs of the need for good food systems to get food to the people that need it most. And the more and more we talked about Chook, Chook was more a way of creating an amenity to give back to our community. Um, <clears throat> everybody's on the fried chicken craze. Yeah, now. Let's, yeah. let's set that uh, clear because everything that's popping up is fried chicken sandwiches. Yeah. You know, and it's Nashville hot and... Um, I had no desire to have a fryer in the, in the restaurant. I wanted this to be healthy, uh, good, clean food that people can access multiple times a week. And my family 
And I know many other families will grab a chicken at Whole Foods or King Supers or whatever it might be. And you take it home and you still got to cook all the sides. So you're still essentially making dinner to go with that chicken. You know, rotisserie chicken is really clean, clean salads, great sides. I mean, we still have mashed potatoes and mac and cheese for all the lovers out there of those things. But we also have some great grain salads and, um, you know, some great sandwiches and some great vegetable sides. It's kind of very vegan friendly already, uh, minus the chicken piece. And, you know, one, we give 1% of our sales back to our community. So it's given back to the community that supported me over the last how many years. Um, and we've done that in so many various ways. Uh, our first year open, we didn't make a dime, but we certainly gave away that 1% of our sales. Um, two was creating more opportunities for employee partners. Um, I've grown with employee partners. Um, as I told you, I was always waiting for that investor to come in and say, Hey, Alex, here's your money. Um, that doesn't happen, you know, and, uh, this is a really tough business. So, you know, if people are helping me with these projects, I, I want to make them a part of it. Um, I've got two new partners in Chook already in two years. Um, one of them started as a cashier. Um, and I feel good about that, you know, and then the second or the third thing was really creating, helping the food systems. You know, we don't have good poultry here in Colorado. How do we create that? How do we support local poultry farmers that want to do it right? How do we figure out um, the processing, the shipping, the storage, you know, all those things. Um, and, but most importantly, I wanted to feed a family of four for the same price as pizza. Uh, so we, owe, we, we use the same chicken that we use okay. at fruition and mercantile. We use the same produce vendors. Um, it's just a different labor model. And, you know, we can feed a family of four for just right around 40, 45 bucks. And I mean, there's three locations. You guys just opened, I think, the one in Stanley Marketplace not too long ago. Um, yep. But like after you opened the first one, I think the second one might have been open too. But then, you know, fast forward up to basically, you know, the pandemic hits, you know, about a year ago now. And everything shuts down, but you were able to kind of keep the core group together and you guys kind of pivoted to doing meals for the community. Um, you know, even though you had to lay some people off, you're still were able to help them get unemployment benefits and get into all that stuff that they needed. But I mean, you guys were doing meals for hospitals, frontline workers. How did all that like come together? Was it just as soon as you realized that everything was going to have to shut down, it was like just instantly your brain just went to what can we do? Or did you have to take a couple of days to kind of figure, all right, let me step back from it and kind of get the full picture before figuring out where, where we can go? Yeah, no, I had to take a mental health day. Um, we decided to keep all of our managers employed and fully salaried um, with their benefits throughout the whole entire year. And I think we were one of the few people to do that. And obviously, we just wanted to... It's about people, man. This is my restaurant family, you know, and uh, the people that run my restaurants and help me run these organizations are the people... I obviously want to take care of everyone, down to the dishwasher, um, down to the server, back weight, whatever. Um, but there was only so much we could do. And we did, uh, we did set up a foundation, Colorado restaurant response. Um, we did feed, uh, unemployed restaurant workers, uh, to the tune of, uh, 400 a day, um, for those first 12 weeks or whatever it was. Um, yeah, my heart was just, I didn't know what to do. I mean, everything just kind of, uh, collapsed in front of our eyes. And, uh, I just kept thinking about the people um, that worked with me, some for a long time, some for a short time. Um, our industry's still been decimated by it. We still have people that are unemployed. Um, you know, but I think 
the focus was just trying to remain positive every day. Um, you know, had to become a psychiatrist and certainly work through a lot of mental health uh, issues that arose almost on a daily basis, it seemed, you know, as there's a lot of fear um, from our teams. Um, but, you know, we're very well supported by the community. Um, and uh, we didn't have to close down at Shooks or Fruition at all. We did close down at Mercantile for about a month and a half. Um, but, you know, Shook, it was a it was a great model for COVID. Um, we were doing a lot of takeout pre-COVID. And so that wasn't, there wasn't much we had to switch there. Um, if anything, we became more efficient and learned our business model and how it should be um, through COVID. How hard was it to to kind of wait? I mean, I know you waited to probably longer than most to reopen, even once kind of the green light hit for, you know, you could reopen for dine-in. You seemed, I think I listened to, I think you were on like a, like a radio station interview or something and you were talking about it, but how difficult was it knowing that, you know, the faster we reopen, the faster I can bring people back, but you're also trying to balance the people that you have or are going to bring back like their health and safety. So, so how hard was it to just kind of play that game of when's the right time for us to participate in, in reopening for dine-in with everything going on? Looking back at the year, we had to make every day and it was like, which finger do you cut off? You know, um, there wasn't a right decision in many instances. Um, we just had to go with the best decision. We thought, um, we did take our time in all of those openings, um, to ensure the safety of our team, number one, um, and certainly the guests. Um, you know, I always think about our team first. It's always team first before the guests. A lot of people value guests first. Um, certainly we can't do business without the guests, but we also can't do business without the team. And, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, that was really the most challenging part was just trying to figure out our team and how we survive. So people do have a job, uh, when things get back to normal and, um, you know, I mean, we just were allowed to go to 50% on Saturday and we're still operating at 25% this week. Um, so we won't rush into it again. Um, it's just about trying to do things the right way. And it's not about a money grab or anything like that. I think, you know, I don't have investors, so I can keep healthy businesses, um, you know, and I'm not a greedy person. The money that these restaurants make <clears throat> has always been reinvested either into the restaurants or the community or projects or whatever it might be. So, um, so we'll come out of this and uh, hopefully be in a good place to uh, serve people again. You know, you guys, I think you guys might have had to... S- like open and temporary close for like how hard is it for a restaurant to start and stop whether it be changing in in the city's health guidelines capacity restrictions potential exposure contact tracing like starting and stopping is is that just the new kind of normal for a restaurant is it more i don't want what we have i think that's why we take a more cautious cautious route um you know to feed 50% or 25% more people, I got to have more people on my team. And we're, we're interviewing right now at Mercantile because we started with one manager and three servers. And it's because in December, we were doing $200 a night, $1,200 a night. Um, January has been a lot busier than we anticipated. We started indoor dining on the 12th, um, a couple weeks after they allowed us. And we've been having very successful nights. And so that puts a lot of strain on the team. And we're obviously going to take our time in hiring the right people. We're not just going to add bodies to it. So, 
you know, we don't have our patios open right now. Uh, we're not going to 50% right away. Um, when our team is ready to deliver that volume, that's when we'll do it. So with, you know, reopening and you just touched on it, you know, hiring, how difficult is it to hire with still Corona? Because I mean, you were able to get, you know, Alex, who's the new executive chef at Mercantile, you know, because Matt went and opened his own restaurant up in uh, Breckenridge um, up there. But how hard is it now compared to before to find people? Well, it was getting, uh, I didn't feel the same effects that a lot of people around the country felt um, with the difficulties in hiring until maybe the last six months to a year right before COVID when the, when the, um, just seemed kind of like the whole restaurant industry market just dried up, um, with talent and it's unfortunate, but like so many of the big cities have been hit by this, uh, Chicago, New York, Philly, you know, they're, they have not been able to operate the same as Denver. Um, I think our governor did a pretty good job of keeping things under control and, and uh so now just recently as we're looking to add to our team i mean it's there's a lot of amazing talent out there i would say probably 90 percent of the resumes that i receive are outside of colorado oh wow so people yeah. want to move to colorado i mean i know a lot of people do just because you know it's been a big influx over the last few years you know with people looking to, to get to colorado and, and denver and everything so right. uh, were you worried like when you guys opened the the other the Shook and Stanley Marketplace, were you worried at all about foot traffic or did you know like just because the success of the other two and the to-go model success there, like it was going to be, it was a no-brainer kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we like that area, uh, Stanley Marketplace and the people that are involved. Um, it was nice to do a restaurant outside of Denver, my first one. Um, so we're hitting a little bit of a different community there. But no, we've been, I mean, there was a lot of support for took number three from that neighborhood um, before it opened. Um, and that's, it, it just kind of shows that there's a brand building with Chuck. You know, the first one, there was a lot of excitement because Adam and I were doing a restaurant. The second one was like, oh, big deal. You know, Adam and Alex are doing another Chuck. And the third one, it's like, there's a brand building. So there's a little bit more excitement. Um, and I hope that continues to, uh, to increase. Um, you know, we are looking at the next location already. So are you still planning on, uh, doing the mercantile at the Denver airport. Is that still in the works or? Yep. That was kind of put on hold. Um, but, uh, that should hopefully be up by the first of the year. You know, the airport's been pretty lenient with us as far as putting the hammers down and not building during this time. Yeah. I mean, you've done, you know, just to recap for everybody listening, you've done, you know, restaurant, you've done a marketplace, a farm that, you know, is meats, fruits, vegetables, cheese, uh, fast casual, bread, pastry, pretty much everything that somebody could encounter from like a food and ingredient standpoint, you know, for a guest that they would consume. Was that always kind of the idea that you had behind each new venture was how do I take this aspect of the guest experience and improve upon that to like kind of perfect it? Or was it just always looking for new challenges for yourself? Yeah, no, I think, um, oh boy, that's kind of a tough one. Um, you know, I don't know. I think there were things that just interest me at the time. And, uh, it's fortunate looking back that a lot of those things work well together, you know? Um, but I don't think it was a master plan that I had in place five, six years ago to do this product, this product, this product, this product. I knew I wanted to make cheese. Um, I'm from Wisconsin. I've, I love eating cheese. I mean, I knew that was going to be a product right away. Um, and the others have just kind of evolved over time. 
being from Wisconsin and, you know, that's a big beer community. Denver's a big beer community. I mean, Wisconsin kind of is infamous for spotted cow. Have you ever considered venturing into the beer industry at all yourself? Or is that something that you're like, too crowded? I want to stay away. <laughs> too crowded. Too crowded. I'll, I'll support breweries. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's just one thing. It's I don't really know it. I mean, I, we, we've made beer at the farm and, um, you know, and I got into it a little bit more there. Um, but no, I never thought about it. How did you pick up pottery? Like, was that just a COVID hobby or was that something that you're always kind of messing around with and just now you had more free time or? Yeah, no, it was, uh, definitely a COVID hobby. Uh, my neighbor does some awesome pottery and I asked him in like September, Hey, can I get some stuff from my restaurants? And he's like, the only way you're getting my clay in your restaurants is if you come make it yourself. And I had never even touched clay or a wheel or anything. And uh, went over there one night and just, I was hooked. I was, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it's all revolves around food. You know, it's like, how cool is it to think about a dish and then think about creating the dish for that, you know? Um, so Jim, or I mean, uh, Alex, chef Alex has put some new dishes together and he's got a salmon rice bowl on the menu. So I just created some salmon rice bowls. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's just been really healing. You know, it's, it's something to focus on something new to learn. I, I just like learning new things, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess I'm the Jack, Jack of many and the master of none. Um, but I, I guess I like learning new things. I mean, the intensity and the focus on the clay has to be there hundred percent. It doesn't allow you to think of anything else, which is great when you're in my position. Cause all, all I do all day long is think. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been really enjoyable. Is, is there some sort of long-term goal for yourself with pottery to eventually be able to like make all the plates that are used in the restaurants? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I got to get better though. I'm still learning. I mean, I'm still making stuff for the restaurants. So, uh, it's been nice, but I, I definitely still work. I mean, I've only been doing it for two months. How do you, how do you decide if it's like something that you make on the wheel is good enough? Do you have to get somebody else's like chef Alex or somebody be like, Hey, is this usable? Or how do you determine if it's quality enough? Or I'm my biggest critic, you know, when it comes to anything. So I, I, I usually like to think that I'm pretty honest with myself um, and can be subjective. I don't think everything I do is amazing. Um, so I can break down my own flaws for sure. What's uh, what's next for, you know, Mercantile, Fruition, Shook? Like what's next for you guys? Just really trying to improve every day. You know, uh, Mercantile certainly has the airport coming up. Um, you know, I'm looking to... Uh, to continue to grow with uh, my teams. Uh, certainly Chef Alex is, um, he's been a strong addition to our team, great asset and love to partner with him on some future projects and mercantile potentially. And, uh, but as far as like creating new concepts, I mean, never say never, but like, I'm pretty content. I got to really focus on Chuck and it's, it's growth. So it can continue to do the things and learn to do the things that I want it to do when it comes to food systems and uh, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I've been getting into a little bit more, uh, just, I don't want to say policy work because I don't want to become a politician, but just, uh, you know, working towards uh, more regenerative agricultural practices here in Colorado, you know, and again, just giving back to my community in any way I can. Um, I've just been overwhelmingly been supported by this Colorado community and uh, have had a... Uh, 
have had experiences that I never imagined, you know, and I feel very, very lucky for that. Very grateful. Do you think Shook is something that you could eventually take outside of the Colorado borders? Yeah, I do. Uh, we've received a lot of interest from around the country. Um, and uh, I mean, that's our goal is to grow it so it has the tools to do what it should be doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it will grow outside of Colorado. I mean, certainly that's one of our goals, um, but also doing it the right way. All right. So I got eight more questions for you. I ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, first question, what is, who was the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, would you say? Hmm. I'd have to say our guests, people I cook for. Um, because if I understand the people I'm cooking for, it helps me understand how and what I should be cooking. And that's evolved over the years. Is that like the benefit of kind of like having the chef's counter? You know, not that it's the the biggest section, obviously in mercantile, but getting that instant feedback from a guest once you sit down that plate is like you can tell, all right, that one's we know what we're doing with that. That one we need some work. Absolutely. I mean, having having that interaction, I mean, it's part of the reason why mercantile is so wide open is so all the chefs in there have an opportunity to engage and build their own skills in um, communicating with guests, answering questions, um, sharing knowledge, those types of things. What's the uh, one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Um, I don't have one. Nothing? No, man. I like, I like uh, I mean, salt and pepper. Okay. No, I mean, that works. I mean, I've gotten people said towels, spoons, um, a whole bunch of different stuff. So yeah, salt and pepper. I like to, uh, I like, I like old school, simple wood fire cookery. Don't need a lot of gadgets. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I've gone through the sous vide and, uh, you know, the circulators and Paco jets and, um, I like simple cooking. What's the one Denver restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? So somebody's, you know, flying into Denver, you, all your restaurants are closed that day. They're stuck at their, you know, layover, flight canceled, can't get out till the morning. They're like, hey, Alex, I need a place to eat. Where should I go? You guys aren't open. Probably Safta. It's, uh, it's a newer restaurant, um, Middle Eastern, Israeli. So kind of a, sets a standard for that type of cuisine here in Colorado. Cool. Uh, what's your bucket list travel destination restaurant that you want to eat at? Haven't been to yet. Wow. Um, that's a great question. I've been very fortunate to eat a lot of places around the world. Um, very fortunate. I don't have a strong one on my list right now. Maybe Pujol in Mexico City. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? The craziest thing I've seen happen? Mm. Yeah, I've I've had people say, uh, you know, one uh, sushi chef accidentally kind of dropped his knife and stabbed himself. I said people seen the Ansel system go off. The hood fell out of our ceiling. Okay, that that counts. <laughs> yeah, was that that at fruition? I think you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, that was at fruition. You guys first started. Uh, food or drink guilty pleasure? Um, gummy worms. Gummy worms. Okay, not gummy bears. Has to be gummy worms. Um, it actually is gummy bears. Okay. Gummy bear, gummy bears and drumsticks. Is there a certain type of gummy bear? I know because there's like two main main kinds, right? There's the was it Habro, which is I think the gold packaging. There's the other big brand. Yeah, 
those are no bueno. Um, no, it's this new brand that I found, and I don't even know the name of the brand. It's a white bag, and it's got like a bunch of good flavors. Okay. What What's the favorite kind of thing that you look back upon that you cooked, dish that you created, like your aha moment as a chef? Um, I think it was when I was a younger chef, and I created a meal for my family that included rack of lamb. And then last question for you, what's your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode, moment, scene? What's the one that uh, you remember most about him? Um, I wasn't really an Anthony Bourdain fan. Okay. Who was... Is there any travel host that, that was your your go-to? No. No. I, I, I don't really watch TV. Okay. Um, I, uh, I remember seeing... A couple shows of Anthony Bourdain's, um, but he ripped Denver up pretty bad one time, and I was like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> so I never really followed him. Um, I got you. And I never, I never really met him. Um, you know, certainly he was an icon in our industry, and I can respect him for that. Um, bringing people a lot of, you know, I, I think he told a good story. Um, I just, uh, you know, when I when I go home, I really try to turn it off, if you will. Was there any cooking program, I guess, like when you were coming up that maybe had some sort of looking back on it, some sort of influence, like whether it was, you know, Emeril, Yen Ken Cook, anything like that? Totally. Um, my my mom's second husband used to watch a lot of um, cooking shows when I was younger. And so I do remember watching, I mean, when Emeril first got on um, back in the day and who else was there? Yan Ken Cook. There was... Uh, Ooh, who else? I'm trying to remember. Julie Childs was on for a while. Um, yeah, I watched her a little bit. She was a little too housewifey for me, though, so I never really got into watching her shows. Again, that's like an icon. Um, watched a little Jacques Pepin. Okay, yeah. Where uh, plug all the stuff? Where where can they find you? Uh, I mean, obviously different restaurants, but Instagram website. Um, well, fruitionrestaurant.com or cantaldenver.com. Chook Chicken Denver or ChookChicken.com and uh, on Instagram it's Big A Seidel. All my cooks and everybody call me Big A, and it's probably maybe not always because my name is just Alex. So uh, <laughs> I'm getting better though. Well, look, man, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, coming on. Open invitation. You ever got new restaurant opening? Uh, anything to plug, or you just want to talk food or whatever? Uh, more than welcome to come back on. You know, in the future. Appreciate it. Hopefully, you know, you guys, everything kind of gets back to normal in, in Denver and you guys are able to ramp up and keep do- doing what you're doing. Um, you know, I've been to Mercantile firsthand. It's an awesome place to eat. Looking forward to a, a future trip to fruition and, and everything like that. But um, yeah, pre- again, stay safe. Appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll talk. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. If you make it out to Denver, let me know. We'll do. We'll do. All right, Ray. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks again to Alex Seidel for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It was great to kind of sit down and talk with him for about an hour, hour, 20 minutes. Hopefully get to talk to him again in the future as kind of things reopen and get back to normal and they continue to expand with the Shook concept. And who knows, you know, maybe he'll eventually undertake opening another restaurant, though that'll probably be a few years out if anything like that happened. Pretty interesting, you know, just from the farm perspective and then also like the hiring you know, in COVID and everything and how many resumes that they get from out of state, you know, people that are looking to relocate to the area. So that is the sixth episode that we've done. So we're going to continue to do these, you know, it'll probably be every other week for a couple of weeks there. They were kind of in a row. 
just because of some special stuff that uh, was going on at some of the restaurants and everything. So wanted to make sure to get those out in time to help them, you know, promote uh, limited, you know, events and stuff that they were doing. We'll continue to get as many chefs as I can to come on the podcast. Uh, I know some are a little apprehensive, just, you know, if you're not doing a whole lot of public speaking or a lot of interviews and stuff like that, it can be a little bit daunting. And, and not everybody likes, you know, to talk about themselves. And I mean, there's, there's quite a few chefs that are just like, we, I like to cook food. I don't want to, you know, do all the publicity and all that stuff too. So, but still working on a bunch of people. So hopefully, you know, be able to get some more people locked down and and get these episodes out there. It's a lot of fun doing them. You know, I definitely want to circle back around and and keep in touch with everybody who comes on the podcast too, as well. Uh, I think it'd be cool to just kind of follow up with them every you know, six months, year, whatever. And just, you know, as new stuff comes out for them, you know, new concepts or whatever that they can, you know, have a place that they can come and kind of talk about it and explain the thought process behind it. So it doesn't get taken out of context because it's in their own words. And, you know, you have the whole conversation in audio format so you can you know redirect people to it and just be like, hey, you know, I get this question all the time. Like I answered it here on this podcast. Go check it out. That's kind of like the the idea behind a lot of the, the chef interviews, just because there's like I mentioned before, there's so much information that's just kind of all over the place and it's contradictory. The first episode that a chef comes on, it, it, we go through kind of their culinary career up to that point, just because there's so much just information that just doesn't line up with, you know, one article to the next or one interview to this other publication. None of it really seems to be the same. So it lets them kind of set the record straight on like, this is actually how my career went. This is why it went that way. And then also they get to talk about just, you know, what they got going on with their restaurants and the ideas behind it and everything and, and what they see in the future. And I think, I think it's a cool concept. So I like doing it. Hopefully everybody likes listening to it. Uh, the response so far has been pretty amazing. Um, just the amount of people that have listened to some of these episodes that we've done. So appreciate all the support. Make sure to check out, you know, the website link in kind of the Instagram bio, just kind of figured out how to use Linktree for the first time, which uh, probably should have learned that a long time ago. But uh, if you click through it, it'll basically give you a a pop-up and then it's a bunch of different uh, buttons you can click depending on which podcast you want to go to or or whatever, or webpage, you know, the chef pages and everything. All that stuff is still on the website, so make sure to check it out. You can spoonmob.com, you can go there directly. There's always new stuff whether it's new chef profiles of different places that we've eaten at that are really interesting places that are worth writing about, or it's just revisiting some places that we love and, and breaking down some of the new dishes and stuff that they've come out with, whether it's, you know, Veritas, Chapman's, so on and so forth. So make sure to check out all that stuff. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast pretty much on all the platforms. If there's a platform that you use that you can't find us on, shoot us a note in the contact section of the website, there's a little message box that you can send in. And then I'll definitely uh, run that down and see if we can't get on that platform or if we're not on there for some reason. But definitely on all the major ones. The only one I think is still outstanding is Pandora, just because they apparently take, it's really difficult. Like they just, it's like almost they have one person just kind of running the submission section and, and putting people on their network or whatever. So anyways, yeah, make sure you subscribe, follow along to the podcast and uh, spread the word. Anybody looking for entertaining stuff to listen to because it's pretty thin out there these days. Make sure to, you know, Pitch Spoon Mob is something they should check out. Appreciate all the help and talk to you guys later.